This particular section of the book of Acts is what uh, historians would call an, a hinge. It's a pivotal uh, point in the development of the early church where uh, the church begins its westward expansion. Luke, up to this point, has been describing for us the growth and development of the church uh, in, in and around Jerusalem, in the province of Judea, and then on into Samaria. But uh, from this point on, the church changes its focus from a Jewish church with the emphasis of the his history primarily on Peter to a Gentile outreach, and in particular, a movement toward the West with the Apostle Paul as the uh, predominant figure. From this point on, Paul is the, is the dominant person in the book of Acts. Let's uh, begin reading with the first verse of chapter 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch both prophets and teachers, Barnabas, for example, Sinium, uh, Simeon, surnamed Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Manaen, the foster brother of the governor Herod, and Saul. We've been talking about the uh, church in Antioch, as you know, and here Luke introduces us to the leadership in that, uh, in that church. And we're given the names of five men, three of whom were prophets and two were teachers. Uh, Luke uses a, a very simple grammatical device to indicate which of the three are prophets. They're the first three, Barnabas, Simeon, and Lucius. And the teachers are Manaen and Saul. We've talked before about the distinction between these two groups. The prophets had the same ministry that the prophets in the Old Testament had. Their function was to receive direct revelation from God and transmit that to the church. And their ministry was authenticated by prediction. They foretold the future with 100% accuracy. That's how their, their revelations could be authenticated. And I've said before, they, uh, their, their ministry was limited in the New Testament era to the time until the New Testament itself was completed. They didn't have a New Testament, obviously, in the early church. It hadn't been written yet. Up to this point, none of the New Testament had been written. There was a need for revelation, and these prophets functioned in that capacity. But after the New Testament was completed, there was no reason for the prophetic gift to continue. And for myself, I don't see prophets in the church today, but there are teachers today as there were then. There were teachers whose function it was to teach the Old Testament. That's the only scripture that, that they had. Now, we know some of these, these men, Barnabas, is well known. His name occurs on a number of, uh, uh, at a number of uh, periods in the history of the church. He was the man who introduced the Apostle Paul to the apostles, and he was the one who went off to Tarsus and found Paul and brought him back to Antioch and installed him there as a teacher. Without, humanly speaking, without Barnabas, there would have been no Apostle Paul. He's one of these people working behind the scenes that we don't see a great deal of. We don't know too much about him. But uh, had there not been a Barnabas, there would not have been a Paul, and there would not have been a John Mark. He was a man who consistently played second fiddle. He didn't care about being up front. He was always in a, in a second position, encouraging and helping others to grow up uh, to, to full stature in Christ. That was Barnabas. And then there was Simeon, surnamed Niger. He was apparently a Roman because his nickname is Latin. And uh, the word Niger means black. 
He was a black man. And interestingly enough, may have been the Simon who carried Jesus' cross. Uh, that's highly probable. If so, it makes an interesting twist in the story. This is uh, the man who originally carried Jesus' cross, and now he's carrying the message of the cross on out to the Gentile world up in Antioch. And then there's Lucius the Cyrenian, uh, of whom we know absolutely nothing, except he came from North Africa. That's where Cyrenia is. And Manaan, the foster brother of the governor Herod, uh, that's the Greek form of the first name of the prime minister of Israel, Menachem, pagan. And uh, this man was a member of nobility. He was an aristocrat and had been raised with Herod Antipas, who was, at this, this is not the Herod, whose death is told in chapter 12. It's another member of the Herodian family who was the governor of, uh, of Perea, off across the Jordan, in Galilee. And then last and least is Saul. That's one of the interesting things about this list. He's not an apostle at this point, or at least he's not so designated. He's, he's just a teacher in the church. This is the man we know later as the Apostle Paul. There are several things very interesting about this list. One is simply the fact that they're a very diverse group, multinational group. One was a Jew, another was a Roman, another seems to be a Greek. One was a Cypriot, one was a black man, another was probably an Arab came from North Africa. They were multilingual. Uh, Paul would probably speak Aramaic and perhaps and, and certainly Greek, and, and other languages would be represented. They were multicultural, very diverse group. It's just another indication, again, that differences don't make any difference in the body of Christ. Uh, national origin, cultural background, edu educational uh, Advantage. None of those things matter. We're all different. We're a very diverse group, and we ought to be a, a multinational, multicultural uh, group. That's what the church is. But those differences don't make any difference. There's only one race in the world, and that's the human race. And everyone who's a member of that race is created in the image of God. And we need to keep that in mind. We can't ever become a church that's just a white, middle-class church. That's wrong. Racism is, is a sin. Bigotry is wrong. And we have to accept people because God loves them just as they are. And the second thing I would say about this group is uh, just a note about the order of listing. Barnabas comes first and Saul comes last. And that was the order up to this point. If you look uh, just uh, to the chapter before in chapter 12... <laughs> Pardon me, Mark places one of his uh, summaries there to indicate that a new history of the church is beginning. And he says that the word of the Lord continued to gain ground and increase its influence. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their mission. It's Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas is the leader of the expedition that takes the gift down to Jerusalem. And when they return, it's Barnabas and Saul. And when they leave for Cyprus, it's Barnabas and Saul. But if you uh, look right across the page at chapter 13, verse 13, it says, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. And from that point on in Luke's history, it's always Paul and Barnabas. So there's a reversal in, in roles. And here's another indication of the stature of this man, Barnabas. He was willing to play second fiddle to uh, this young upstart, Saul. 
because he realized the enormous role that God intended for this man. Uh, someone on our staff this past week reminded me that this is very much uh, like the relationship between Ray Steadman and Luis Palau. Luis Palau now, as you know, is, a, is a, uh, an evangelist who's known all over the world. He, he has access to kings and, and rulers. But uh, when Luis Palau first came to, to Peninsula Bible Church to intern, he was a lowly bank teller. <laughs> and uh, that, was his, uh, that was his job. And uh, he, that's, that's what he wanted to be. And after a few years, he was, he was preaching the gospel to kings. When uh, Ray and, and Luis began, it was Ray Stedman and Luis Palau. And now wherever they go, it's Luis Palau and his baggage carrier, Ray Stedman. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. See, it doesn't matter. Uh, we have to be willing to step back and let someone else take a position of leadership. I, uh, when Bob Smith was here last, last week speaking to the men, he reminded me of, of an incident that occurred when I was on the staff at uh, Peninsula Bible Church. And for a while I'd been in a uh, place where I had a fairly prominent ministry working with university students. And then the elders asked me to leave that ministry. And I was sort of a troubleshooter on the staff. And, and I mostly sat behind a desk. And for a year or so, I wasn't involved in any sort of public ministry at all, and it just rubbed me the wrong way. And I went in to complain to, to Ray about it one day, and he said, Look, David, don't you believe that you're a part of, of Christ's body? And I said, Yes. And he said, Well, let's, let's assume that you're the hand. Doesn't he have the right to put his hand in his pocket if he wants to? And uh, he's right, you see. He's right. God had the, has the right to do that to us in order to get the job done, to elevate one. As in the case of John the Baptist, who always stands out in my mind as an example of, of, of great humility, he said of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. It, it doesn't really matter who gets the praise for what gets done. The important thing is that the job gets done. And we have to be willing to step back and let others take a place of leadership if that's God's plan for them. And it's quite obvious that uh, that Barnabas, in this case, was willing to step back. Now, reading on in verse 2, while they were serving the Lord, that is, these five men, and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them, saying, Set Barnabas and Saul apart for me for a task to which I have called them. Uh, apparently, through some prophetic utterance by one of the prophets, the uh, message was delivered that God wanted to set these two men apart for a particular uh, task, which is not designated here. We, we don't know at this point, and apparently the church in Antioch had no idea what God had in mind for them. But after further fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and set them free for this work. So these two, so that, sent at the Holy Spirit's command, went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed off to Cyprus. Seleucia was the seaport just a few miles from Antioch. And they set sail for uh, Cyprus. A couple of things interest me in, in these two verses. The first is uh, uh, simply the fact that the church sent their very best. These uh, two fine young leaders from Antioch were the ones that were selected. That ought to give us a different perspective upon the, the missionary enterprise 
Unfortunately, the church for years has felt that you know, that's where you send your calls, your rejects, the people that can't make it here. But it strikes me that that's a totally backward way of, of looking at overseas mission. That's where we ought to be sending our very best teachers, our most experienced, seasoned people, to go where the gospel has never been proclaimed and, and plant churches where none exist. And apparently that's the way the church felt about, about this assignment. This wasn't a second-rate operation. They cared enough to send the very best. And uh, they sent Barnabas and, and uh, Saul overseas, and they set out for Cyprus. There's kind of an interesting touch to this. The uh, term that Luke uses to describe their sailing is literally they sailed away. And uh, I suspect that Luke himself, who many people believe was an Antiochian, was standing right there on the beach as they set sail for Cyprus and saw them leave. Why Cyprus? Well, because it was Barnabas' home. He was a Cypriot. And uh, Christians had already gone to Cyprus at one point earlier in the history. And Cyprus uh, was uh, much on Barnabas' heart, and he wanted to go and, and make contact with some of his friends and business associates there. He probably knew people all over the island. He'd been a wealthy landowner. And he, he had personal contacts there that he wanted to follow up. So they, they set sail uh, together for his home. And on their arrival at Salamis, they began to proclaim God's message, uh, message in the Jewish synagogues, having John as their assistant. John was their baggage carrier, carrier on this uh, journey. John, This is the John, who's known as John Mark in the New Testament, who wrote the Gospel of Mark under, under Peter's uh, tutelage. And uh, when they arrived in Salamis, which is a large city on the east side of the island, Paul began to go into the synagogues and preach. That was his pattern, because he, he was a rabbi. And uh, he wore the distinctive garb of a rabbi. He would be as obvious as a Methodist bishop walking into our uh, service this morning with his clerical uh, garb on. Anyone would spot him. And they would ask him to say a word. And the Apostle Paul, anxious to please, I'm sure, would step to the front and take the scroll and unroll it, and he would say a few words. Uh, we know from some early writers, his approach, he would read the Old Testament inserting the name of Jesus. Wouldn't that be a shocker? You came to the synagogue to worship, and this, uh, this uh, unknown rabbi came out of nowhere, and he began to read the scriptures and, and tell me that Jesus was the Messiah. It must have uh, rocked the, the countryside. But interestingly enough, Luke doesn't tell us a thing about this series of contacts. They, they made their way across the island, Luke says, but uh, we're, not we're not given any information about that, that journey. They made their way through the whole island as far as Paphos, which was the provincial capital, the capital of the island, <coughs> Pardon me. And they came across a man named Bar-Jesus, a Jew who was both a false prophet and a magician. This man actually had two names. One was Bar-Jesus, which means the son of Joshua. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Joshua. He was not a Christian, nor did he particularly know anything about Christianity. He was a renegade Jew, a false prophet. Was, uh, he had a nickname, Ilimos, which is just another word for magician. But he wasn't the kind of magician that we're familiar with who does uh, tricks and sleight of hand, an illusionist. 
He was an occultist. He was a wizard, a magi. And he was attached to a man named Sergius Paulus. Isn't that a great Italian name? Sergio Paul. He must have been a tenor in the uh, Paphos Metropolitan Opera. <laughs> made, his mama made great spaghetti. And uh, he is described as the proconsul. Very often these, uh, these governors and rulers and emperors had, uh, had wizards for, uh, as, a, as a part of their, uh, their court. One of the early Roman writers, Juvenal, describes Tiberius, one of the emperors, with his band of Chaldeans gathered around him, much like Hitler, who had his fortune tellers and palm readers. And this man, uh, Sergio, had his, his wizard, his own private counselor on occult things, this uh, Bar-Jesus. And he's described here as the proconsul, who was himself a man of, of vast intelligence. Uh, Luke, in earlier years, used to be uh, criticized a great deal because the, the skeptics thought that his history was not accurate. But this is one case where they've been proved wrong time and time again. The particular word that he uses for, for proconsul here, they said, well, now that's not the word that you would use for the governor of an island because this would be an imperial province and there'd be another name that you would use. He was, he's wrong here, you see. So that proves that the, that the history is late and it's unreliable. But in recent years, they've discovered that Cyprus at this time was not an imperial province. The Senate governed it. And the name of the governor would be the proconsul, so that Luke was absolutely accurate in his history. And as a matter of fact, in even more recent uh, time, they have discovered an inscription with this fellow's name on it. So they know that he was indeed the governor of, of Cyprus at this time, and he bears the proper name. Luke winds his way through all of these, these titles, and he calls them uh, accurately in every case. So it's just another evidence that we have here, a very, uh, very accurate history. This man uh, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he was anxious to hear God's message. I suspect that what happened is that Sergius Paulus opposed them in some way as they were preaching, and uh, the governor of the island heard about this encounter and then asked for more information. Now, let me ask you, if you were going to set up an audience with the governor of an island, how, how would you do it? These people were unapproachable. It's not like walking into our governor's office. Now, I, when I first came to Boise, I went up to the state house to visit a friend, and he said, you want to meet the governor? And I said, yeah, can you do that? And he said, sure. He goes over and knocks on the door, you know, and sure enough, you just walk in. But it didn't happen like that in those days. Here's the key man in the island. If you were going to set up a contact, how would you do it? Well, you certainly wouldn't do it through a, a renegade uh, Jewish uh, apostate uh, wizard. But that's God's way of doing things. You never know about God. That's part of the excitement of following him around. You just never know what he's going to do next. That's what makes the Christian life exciting. And throughout the history of Acts, you see that sort of thing duplicated over and over again. God taking his men and women into situations that they could not contrive. Our tendency is to plan and scheme and set up committees and, and uh, wait for something to happen. And what God wants to do is, is to thrust us right into the middle of the action. I can remember years ago walking into Toyon Hall and the campus I was working on and, and encouraging some of the students there to get involved in sharing their faith with the people on their corridor. 
And one student said to me, well, we're, we, we're going to have to wait a while. We're in the process of writing a position paper on evangelism. I said, a position paper on evangelism? It's written. It's here. Let's get on with the task and, and see what, what sort of doors God opens up for us. And that's what you see about this band of, of men, these three. Wherever they go, God is opening doors and giving them unprecedented opportunities to preach the gospel. But uh, Luke tells us that Elimas, the magician, for that's the translation of his name, opposed them, doing his best to dissuade the proconsul from accepting the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, eyed him closely and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all true goodness, you monster of trickery and evil, isn't it high time you gave up trying to pervert the truth of the Lord? Now listen, the Lord himself will touch you for some time. You will not see the light of the sun. You will be blind. Immediately a mist, which uh, incidentally is a medical term. You would expect this sort of thing from Luke, who was a physician. But it was used in those days to refer to a, a clouding of the eyes. A mist, and then an utter blackness came over his eyes. And he went around trying to find someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was shaken to the core at the Lord's teaching. Uh, Paul, who had just recently completed a course on how to win friends and influence people, uh, calls this uh, opponent of the gospel a son of the devil. This actually happened in my presence one time. It was one of the most interesting things that, it, that has ever occurred in my life. I went down to uh, Mexico City with uh, Steve Newman and Todd Poulter, whom some of you know, and a number of other students. And uh, our purpose was to uh, talk to students on the uh, University of the Americas campus. We'd been invited down by Overseas Crusades. And that in itself is an interesting story. When we got there, they had forgotten all about us. Uh, didn't even remember that we were, we were flying in. It was just a mix-up in correspondence. And we stepped off the plane, and no one was there to greet us. And... We didn't know where to start. And we, uh, uh, we started hitchhiking down the road to Puebla from Mexico City. And a student picked us up, uh, uh, Lambert Dolphins, whom some of you know is with us, and we sort of gathered around Lambert and prayed that God would let us know what the next step was. Tried to call some of the OC missionaries, and they were all out of town. And so we started hitchhiking to uh, Puebla, and... Uh, uh, a fellow came along in, a, in an old beat-up car and picked us up, and we started driving along. And, and he said to Steve, who happened to sit right next to him, What are you all here for? And you know Steve. He said, Well, we're here to talk about Jesus. And the fellow said, No kidding. He said, I, I, I just became a Christian two weeks ago at the J.C. Light and Powerhouse in Southern California. He said, I've been desperately looking for Christians. So we had a great time of fellowship on the way to University of the Americas. When we got there, he introduced us to the dean of students, and he opened all kinds of doors for us. And as a result, we were able to have a series of meetings on the campus, and then we went to a motel afterward and rented a large room where we'd have meetings in the evening because we weren't permitted on the campus at night. There was a lot of violence in, in Mexican universities at that time, and they didn't want us there at night. So we went to this uh, motel, and students would come over from the campus and meet with us, and there was a, a, a man... Who we, whom we found out later was the head of the Satan worship cult in Puebla, who opposed us at every meeting. He'd stand up and try to frustrate what was going on. And he stood up in one of the meetings and started to say something. And Ted Wise, who was one of the, the men who went down with us, stood up 
and pointed his finger at him across the room and used the exact words that the Apostle Paul here. He said, I know who you are. You're a son of the devil. And he quoted this passage. And the guy turned white as a sheet and sat down. And he didn't say another thing. He wasn't struck blind, but he was struck dumb. <laughs> I've never in my life seen anything like that happen because I, you know, I tend to be a little more soft sell, but that, <laughs> that was what was needed on this particular occasion. And that's exactly what Paul did to this man, and he, he was struck blind. And the interesting thing is, from this point on, it is now Paul, who formerly was called Saul, who now is the leader of the apostolic band, because he begins to demonstrate what he later refers to as the signs of an apostle. That is, that unique authority, miracle-working authority that was given to the apostles as a means of authenticating their ministry. He had two names. Uh, he bore them all of his life. People back then did. They usually had a Greek name and a, and a uh, Jewish name because they lived in two cultures. And he had been known as Saul Paul. And when he operated in the Greek or Roman world, he was known as Paul. In the Jewish world, he was named, named Saul. That was the name he went by. And so now he begins to use the name Paul. It's simply coincidental that Sergius Paulus' name occurs here, all over the same names. And he begins to take leadership in this this great adventure now to take the gospel out to the, to the Gentile world. Paul now is the dominant figure. And Sergius Paulus apparently became a Christian. We're told in this passage that, that he believed when he saw the impact of the word. It wasn't merely the, the blinding of uh, Elimas. It was the authority with which Paul spoke and the impact of the word of God upon him. Uh, this man not only became a Christian, but apparently three generations of his family did. They found his daughter's grave in Rome in a noble, nobleman's cemetery. Her name was Sergia, the feminine form of Sergio, Sergia Paula. And her son is a Christian. They found his grave as well with a Christian inscription upon it. So evidently three generations of this uh, aristocratic family uh, came to the Lord as a result of, of this contact. Now, I, uh, I say that's excitement at its best. That's, that's the way the Christian life ought to be lived, with real verve and, and real enthusiasm. Our, our tendency is to play things too close to the chest, to be afraid to venture ourselves. And, and mostly we do so out of timidity. But uh, we need to take giant steps of faith and begin to believe God for great things. But often we begin with a very tiny step at the first, just to venture ourselves, to begin to exercise our gifts. All of us, I think, want our lives to count. Nobody wants to spin around in a little eddy somewhere and let the main flow of, of Christians pass us by. We, we want to be in, in the action. We want to be in the mainstream. We want God to use us. Well, where do we begin? Just by making yourself available where you are, being willing to do whatever God asks you to do, whether it's to teach a small group of women or to share your faith with your neighbor or to teach a Sunday school class of children or to start meeting with some other man or woman once a week to disciple them and, and help them to grow. Just take that first step. That's what these people did. They were serving the Lord right where they were when they were thrust out into this great adventure. And that's where we have to begin. Uh, I, I'm sorry to tell so many stories on myself this morning, but it's it's my best source of stories, and so if you'll forgive me. From a human standpoint, 
there was one incident in my life that, uh, without which I, I'm sure I wouldn't be in the ministry today. I, uh, in 1955, I was drafted, went into the Army, and after going through basic and uh, some more training, I was stationed at Fort Irwin in California. That's the Desert uh, Warfare Training Center for the Army. That's their great sand pile. And uh, they sent us out there for two years to play around in the sand. When I got there, they discovered that I had majored in, in physical education in college, and so they thought, aha. And they uh, assigned me to manage the swimming pool. And that was my job. For two years, I ran the swimming pool at Fort Irwin, California. I never left the place except on leave, and that was my job. Um, one of the men who helped me there was a young man by the name of George Lasatz. He was a Catholic Christian and a great man of God, real heart for spiritual things. I have no idea where George is today, but he was a good friend back then. And the two of us became concerned about the high school kids on that post. There were just dozens of high... It was a fairly small post, so that there weren't too many people there, but dozens of high school kids without the Lord. And... Uh, uh, very, very, very promiscuous kids. And that was back in an era when bad kids weren't all that bad, you know. But that's just the way it was. They were army brats, and, and they just uh, went from one house to the next, uh, sleeping together, staying together. It was just a, a bad situation. And George and I were concerned about these kids, and so we started a, uh, a little Bible study with them. I had never taught the Bible before. I didn't even know how to start. I wrote my father... And I asked him for help, and he sent me seven volumes of Schaefer's Systematic Theology. <clears throat> and believe it or not, I actually read a couple of them before I realized that wasn't too impressive to those high school kids. But it helped me. I really grew. And George and I struggled along. We took turns. He'd teach it one time, and I'd teach it one time. And this day, I don't know what we said. And most of their questions were answered by, I don't know, but I'll find out. And... Uh, and George and I started to grow. And I remember one time sitting up in the, in the stand in the guard tower and thinking, it just dawned on me, do I really want to spend the rest of my life teaching kids how to run faster and jump higher and, and play games? Is that what I want to do? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what God calls you to do, that's a noble undertaking. Don't ever disparage it. But for me, it just didn't seem to be the thing that I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. Or do I want to introduce people to Christ and help them to grow up? And it just dawned on me, that's the way I wanted to go. It wasn't a dramatic call. It was just an awareness, a growing awareness that hit me at that point. And that's when I made the decision to go on to seminary and, and try to learn how to teach the Scriptures a little better so that I could carry out that, that ministry. And it all began because I think God tagged me with the needs of those kids. And I would simply encourage you to start right where you are. What is your natural inclination? What are the natural lines of relationship that you can follow? Those are the best lines of communication. Donald McGavern talks about people movements. The gospel tend, tends to move along lines of natural relationship, and I believe that. You lead your barber to Christ, and he knows ten barbers, and, and the gospel begins to spread through that segment of society. Or you lead a student to Christ, and they begin to operate in, in that in that realm. Just start right where you are with the natural inclinations that you have and count on God to do some great thing.
screw you. Whatever it is. I don't know what it is. It's by faith that these things are done, not by self-effort. When we start counting on Him to open doors and, and operate through us, then things begin to happen, as it did in the, in the case of the Apostle. God took him into the heart of the Roman Empire in, in Cyprus. He was able to preach the gospel to the governor of that, of that province who became a Christian. And there's, there's no way of knowing what sort of impact that family had upon the Roman world from, from that point on. But it just began with Paul's willingness to go and entrust himself to the Lord and let God work out the itinerary and make divine appointments for him, even those who oppose him. See, that's all part of God's plan. And we all need to plan and prepare. Uh, you, have a, you have a plan for tomorrow. I'm sure you have to get up and go to work, and you have certain things you have to do. But while you're going through that day, count on the Lord to set up appointments for you, to lead you into situations that will give you an opportunity to, to share your faith or to help someone to grow. I know one woman just two weeks ago who... Uh, received a call from, from a young lady who asked if she could come talk, and she didn't want to talk to her. She was busy, and, and she was afraid because she didn't think she would know what to say when that woman came. But she, she invited her to come, and she led her to Christ last week, and she's going on with the Lord today. Will you try it? That's the great adventure of faith that God has in store for you. We have a current ongoing example of that sort of thing right here among us. Some of you know we've got this little uh, mountain mission, Idaho Mountain Ministries, and uh, our goal is to plant churches in the backcountry. There are so many communities back there without, even, without a, even a Christian, as far as we know, much less a church. Many of those communities don't, we can't find a single living Christian back there. And it's the concern of our heart to plant some churches where, where none exist. About a year ago, uh, one of the guys was talking to a, a woman here in town who's quite involved in, in various Christian ministries, gives a great deal of money. And she just asked about the situation up in Stanley. She said, is there a church up there? Is there a pastor, anything going on up there? And this individual said, uh, no, no, but I'll check it out for you. And so he called, called the mayor, and the mayor gave him another name, uh, Larry Milligan, who's a an artist, Western artist, who lives up in, in the Stanley area. And, and uh, uh, to make a long story short, when that individual called, he wasn't there. Larry Milligan wasn't there, but his mother was. And uh, the woman said, when uh, the call came through, do you know what I'm doing? And he said, no. And she said, I'm writing a letter right now to some people I know asking if it's possible to send a pastor up here to... Stanley. I've been praying all week that God would send someone up here. And it turned out that her husband was J.J. Uh, Fletcher, I think his name was. He was an itinerating Methodist minister who planted that little church there in Stanley. And one thing led to another. As you know, last, uh, last year we were able to send people up on a piecemeal basis to, to minister there. And some of you went up and worked on the chapel, put in weekend time in order to help them. Uh, winterize the building and make some other improvements. And this last year, they're so appreciative of us pilgrims, us flatlanders, whom they normally don't even like to see up there, that they gave us the chapel to use. And now two of our men are on the board, 
And uh, we're responsible for that chapel, and we now have a full-time pastor up there, Peter Waringa, and his wife. And they had anywhere from a dozen to 80 people attending last year through the summer, and they're up there now trying to stay warm. Um, and I say that's all by God's grace. It's His doing. And God is at work among you in your lives to accomplish that same end. Let's, uh, let's stand together. Gracious Father, we're so we're delighted that you've chosen to use us in this uh, in this great enterprise of yours to draw people to yourself, to first win them through your great love, and then introduce them to you and to your salvation. We want to be used. We don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to spend our time doing things that are irrelevant and have no lasting eternal impact. We have no way of knowing what part you want us to play, but we, we want to be available. We want our bodies to be available to you. We want our building to be available, to be used as you see fit. Make of us, Lord, a, a winsome people, gracious in our, in our demeanor, our manner, loving and thoughtful and sensitive toward the people around us, direct in our approach. Take away our fear that paralyzes us and keeps us from, from stepping in the direction you wish us to go. And use us, Lord, as your instruments, as you see fit, to rest a while, if that's your desire, or to uh, become active in some more visible and prominent way. We trust you to do what's best with our lives. And we thank you for all that you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen.